Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. This week, I spoke alongside PwC's Annabelle Charters at the Spark Innovation Studio, all about sustainability and tech. This is one of a series of events that's being put on by the Spark team. Hosted by Randall Meikle, an Agile coach at Spark, the session started with a very good question. What does sustainability mean to you? Big question to start with. For me, um, I always reference Kate Raworth, the, the British economist who wrote Donut Economics. And she talks about social and planetary boundaries and the need for us to live within those boundaries. So for me, sustainability and in that New Zealand contract context is really about making sure that we're living within our means and acting responsible, uh, responsibly both to each other, but also, I suppose, within the natural assets that we have in New Zealand. Thank you. And Vincent? Uh, well, I'll make it more personal. I, you, you might have all read the Lorax when you were kids. And um, I grew up with this really optimistic view that the world was getting better um, and that the Lorax was kind of about the 50s and 60s. And about, oh, it was probably about four years ago, I read a report sitting at my desk working on some client and uh, a report came up from the World Wildlife Fund and it, They've done some tracking to say that we'd lost something like 70% of biodiversity in the last 40 years. So that, I read the Lorax probably when I was 10. So in, in those, between 10 and whatever age I am now, um, in that time we'd lost uh, so much biodiversity around the planet. And I, it really struck me as a, um, in that moment that it was, I'm part of the problem and I could be yeah. part of the solution. So. For me, sustainability is about taking responsibility for that loss and using my skills, my whatever contribution I could make to being part of that, uh, solving this incredible problem that we've foisted on ourselves, really. Thank you. Some great perspectives from both of you. Thank you. Vincent, I'm keen to hear from you as Venture Advisor for the, the Climate VC Fund. What sort of technologies do you see or hope to see come to the fore to help tackle the issues that we face? Mm, good question. Um, so the premise behind the uh, Climate VC Fund is that it's both an opportunity and a, and a problem. And, you know, the great thing about business is where there's a problem, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. So for us, the technology uh, is all about emissions reduction. So the, the VC Fund has two criteria. Will it make a substantial return on investment financially? And like most VC funds, we're, we're kind of aiming for an IIR of 20%. Um, but secondly, will it contribute to emissions reductions? So uh, those are the two criteria, fast growing high returns and <coughs> fast and large uh, emissions reductions. And so what kind of technology would that imply? The four sectors that dominate our thinking are construction, energy, agriculture and transport. 
the reason for those is that's where you get the biggest opportunity for change. And I'll give you a couple of examples. We're, we're very close to making an investment in an industrial heat um, company, which is going to use waste, um, waste heat from factories, store that heat, and then return it back in the form of steam so that you get this kind of co-generation opportunity and reduce reliance on coal. So industrial heat's a very, very hot sector. Um, another one we're really interested in is EV Maritime. Does, does anyone know about EV Maritime? It's the, so they're, they're a, um, here in Auckland, they're, they're planning to uh, replace the entire Fuller's fleet with electric fast ferries. And that's a consortium between Fuller's, EV Maritime who will build it, and Vector Energy that will um, do all the infrastructure. So anything that's electrified uh, has a high, high level of interest. And um, I just read a report yesterday, there's a, there's a billion machines in the States that need to be electrified in the next 10 years. So that, that's kind of mm. the scale of opportunity. And, and um, Annabelle, what about you? Um, if we talk about climate tech, it's, it's quite a large umbrella term, so it's quite good to define it. So in terms of what Vincent has talked about, um, in terms of that focus on, um, I suppose, machines. That's what automatically springs to mind when we think about climate tech, but it does cover a, a number of other things as well. So it's everything from that carbon emissions reduction focus and the technologies that can support that through to products in the built environment. How do we get em embodied emissions in particular out of what we build and what we construct? Um, it's things like um, carbon capture and storage. How do we sequester carbon out of the air if we can't actually reduce it? But it's also things like biotech. So new seed, seed varieties, how genetics are used with animals to reduce emissions. And then more broadly, we can also look at things like different business models or, or ways of operating. So the circular economy. <coughs> Um, and a, a circular business model or a shared economy, a shared business model. They all use technologies and they're all part of this climate tech um, solution set that is actually going to help us live um, or save the planet, hopefully, but also live more sustainably. Because there's one aspect of climate tech that's about getting the emissions out of what we do. So making things less energy intensive or more efficient or, or more renewable if it's, if it's around energy. There's another aspect to it that actually changes the way we do what we do, how we work, how we live, how we consume. And so some of the technologies that fit within that climate tech umbrella um, are focused on that as much as they are about the emissions reduction piece. Thank you. Um, and staying with you, are we starting to see organisations adopt technology at a faster rate than before to help reach their sustainability goals? And if so, what barriers are you still seeing to that? I think that the barrier that we always face with any change is ourselves. Um, the biggest barrier that ironically COVID has um, challenged in many ways is that ability for us to take on new ways of doing things, whether it's new ways of consuming or working or living or enjoying ourselves. Um, what we've seen in the last 18 months is uh, 
humans and, and whole economies' ability to adapt when they need to and very, very rapidly, which is a, the timing's beautiful in terms of how we need to face into the climate crisis because we need rapid, urgent change behaviours happening. So that is probably the biggest barrier I see. But I think at the moment, after what we've lived through in the last 18 months and the changes we've built into our lives and how we work, we're seeing more openness around adoption of anything new than we've seen in, in, in our lifetimes, I think. The other big barrier is always cost. And so the commercial viability of anything and the scalability of anything comes down to the price point that it's offered at. Um, we are seeing, for example, with renewable energy technologies, the likes of wind and solar, the, 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 the cost of generating units of energy using those renewable sources has just plummeted in recent years, which is so exciting because now it's a, it's a viable competitor to fossil fuel-based energies. Same thing will happen with all sorts of other technological solutions, but it takes time and there often needs to be triggers in the economy, not just the market itself, which is where often the government will need to step in with some interventions. Yeah. yeah, I could build on that too, that a big driver of investment and change will be the carbon price. As carbon starts getting properly priced and the price is only going in one direction, the cost of compliance will increase and that will force a whole lot of change around new technologies, new ways, all the things that Annabelle just talked about, new ways of operating. And one of the uh, amazing outcomes of that will be um, new innovations. So you think about mm. what's happened, say, in car safety. You know, there's so many examples of in history of when government requirements drive change and all the, all the safety systems around cars have come as a result of regulation. And um, we sh so we shouldn't fear regulation, we should welcome it because it actually forces people to, and organisations to be more innovative and, and more agile, uh, which would appeal to you, no doubt. <laughs> Um, and I think the carbon price is going to be one of those mechanisms that will stimulate a lot of change. And, and uh, so we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, what is the carbon price going to be, Annabelle? But um, it's, yeah. it's really only going in one direction. Mm. No, that's such a good point, Vincent. I was looking at some research a couple of days ago from Credit Suisse. They had a chart that talked about um, innovations in the use of land, and it was looking at different farming types. So it was looking at beef, it was looking at dairy, the growth of crops. And then it compared it with the price of carbon, and these were US dollar prices, and they were at a carbon price of $50 a unit and at $40 a unit. The, um, the re return on investment for farmers was higher than if they were dairy farmers or they were growing crops. And so suddenly there's this pressure to, to change what we do because financially it doesn't make sense anymore. Mm. So, Yeah, uh, can we add, we add one more comment? Absolutely. Or are you moving on? But, um, no, no. I, I read a really interesting thing about um, pest control. Um, you wouldn't think that pest control would be a viable um, contribution to the economy. I mean, you'd think it's the right thing to do for our biodiversity and so on. But actually, if you factor in the carbon price and the cost of um, not having uh, sequestered carbon in rural environments and on farms, and the role that native forests could play in being part of that um, sort of sequestering management scheme for a farmer, say, and then you've got pests just destroying um, the forest, 
suddenly investment in pest control and reducing rats and possums and deers actually becomes an, an economic um, imperative. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the benefits of pricing carbon properly, and it's kind of you know, it's that whole thing of pricing externalities properly, is that it will re re it'll force investment in biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you're talking about, I guess, governmental kind of levers that, that help us to get there, which obviously probably in our life, they didn't exist when, we, we, when you were reading the Lorax, for, for instance. Yeah. Um, and now they do. Um, in terms of technologies that might help us to, to get, a, get a up there and, and move towards um, addressing some of those barriers um, that people see, what are you seeing in that? Uh, you asking me first? Yep. Yep, okay. Um, well, uh, I think, you know, it's all around us in this room, sensors. Mm. So, so measuring, uh, as, as boring as that sounds, is incredibly exciting business. And it doesn't matter what you're measuring, whether it's um, weather patterns, water use, um, biodiversity, grass growth, um, whether you're counting emissions. I, I saw the other day that... Um, uh, E-Road has just bought Cortex, is yep. it? Um, our two um, New Zealand <coughs> businesses that are basically measuring transport activity. And they're, they're originally designed to replace the, the, um, the hubs, you know, the yeah. hubometers on, yeah. on trucks. But of course that black box can measure everything about that truck, movement, emissions, um, the performance of the engine and so on. So I think sensors are going to be huge business and already are i think you know, you know spark is already incredibly busy in the iot space so you know there's one yeah anything from you annabelle in terms of future i think what's quite interesting is we get caught up on there needing to be one perfect solution to solve these challenges or to respond to these challenges and the reality is it's a bit of a mashup of everything we need everything that can possibly be created and thought about um for example uh, easiest example of this is probably transport. You know, we're hell-bent on EVs being the only solution. They're actually not, and they won't fit all our transportation needs. And so there will be a mix of modal shift, hopefully, but also hydrogen, perhaps um, solid-state batteries, other things that are going to come through as good solutions and as viable solutions for us. So I think it's, it's not that there is one particular technological solution that that is missing necessarily in in the toolbox at the moment it's that there needs to just be more of everything and more creativity and innovation as i mentioned before i think one of the the big gaps is probably in um, carbon capture and storage so that sequestration space um, the technologies aren't there yet. The reality is that we are not going to be able to reduce our emissions in the way we'd like to. There will still be some carbon release through our activities, at least in our lifetime. And so the need for solutions in that space um, that are, that are vi viable and scalable, but also don't create externalities of their own, um, are going to be pretty key in the future, I think. Nice, thank you. Um, I'll stay with you. Can you give us some examples of large New Zealand companies that have good, great sustainability strategies and are really walking the walk? I don't know if this is the wrong thing to say, but I don't know that anyone in New Zealand Inc. is great yet. <laughs> um, but that's okay, because we've got great scope for improvement. Um, for me, um, 
The thing that's really important is not the lovely, glossy sustainability report that organizations are producing. When organizations are really walking the, the walk, um, you see it in the actions and how that shows up and what they're doing, either in what they're producing, what they offer to customers or consumers, and how they treat their employees in the community they operate in. Um, some examples that, that spring to mind where that sustainability ethos is really built into the strategy and business model of organizations, Sinlay would be one. If you look at what they are doing in terms of the environmental standards that they expect of their, their farmers, they're much higher than the compliance obligations in the market um, in terms of the electric boilers that they've put in at great cost. Um, well above what is economically viable for them to do, but it's it's setting the tone. They have incentive-based payments around exceeding, you know, even the, the tough sustainability or environmental goals that they've set their farmers. So it's flowing right through in terms of the products they produce, but how they operate as an organisation. Um, Ports of Auckland doing some really interesting stuff both within the community, thinking about the, the physical environment they operate in and looking at innovation. They've got a micro DC pilot operating to look at conversion of energy in a more efficient way down at the port at the moment. They're looking at huge amounts of electrification. They've got a hydrogen bus system going there. They have created an app that looks at not only the last mile, but routing containers across the country in the most efficient way to do that, to reduce emissions. Um, really, really love seeing those things because they're really pushing the boundaries of how they operate and really challenging where they can drive change, as well as having the big lofty zero carbon goals way out in the future. Nice, thank you. Vincent, um, for you, are you able to share examples of perhaps smaller New Zealand companies which are equally making great strides on the sustainability front and that we could be looking to for inspiration? Sure, yeah, I think um, I, I just participated in the Pledge Me round of the Happy Cow Milk Company. Does, does anyone know about the Happy Cow Milk Company? So this is, um, I committed a massive $150. Um, this is a company that is started uh, by an ex-farmer, dairy farmer turned IT nerd. Um, who has basically taken the dairy factory, um, he's done two things, he takes, the, he takes the, the milking station to the cows, so the milking station's completely mobile, and it, t and it goes into the paddocks where the cows are. So um, that's an innovation. But the more innov innovative thing is that he's uh, taken the whole processing plant and, and got it down into the size of half a, a shipping container so that each farmer can process their own milk to a pasteurised and homogenised state and supply it to their local dairy or cafe or whoever. And it's an example of taking of sort of materials technology and science and, and shrinking down what used to be a massive factory mm -hmm. down into a tiny footprint and localising milk production li literally within sort of a, you know, a few kilometres radius of, um, of, of a farm. And all along the way, he's built an IoT, so everything is measured, everything is tracked, um, including the health of the, the cows and, and so on. Um, it's, it's not a massive emissions reduction story, but it's a, a story of ethics and, and also, um, uh, I suppose, kind of localising 
production so you get this intimacy between the, the grower and the, and the consumer. Uh, and the second one that I, I particularly like um, is um, one called Zero Jet. I don't know if anyone's come across Zero Jet, but they, they uh, a young couple that lived in Aussie, um, both high-performing athletes that were really into surfing and built an electric surfboard. They realised that only about three people in the world would build, would buy electric surfboards. <laughs> so uh, did a classic pivot and taken their technology <coughs> and put it into um, tenders and, and small, you know, small, effectively outboard um, boats and here in Auckland and making electric um, electric boats and um, beautifully branded uh, really well made and and just going to go gangbusters and nice. you know not a not a single fossil fuel involved amazing thank you back to you Annabelle through our response to the COVID-19 pandemic we saw businesses and individuals adapt quickly adopting technology through necessity are there any lessons to be learned from this uh, to accelerate the rate of businesses change to achieve sustainability outcomes? I, I th think probably the biggest lesson, and I alluded to this before, is that we are very capable of change when we need to. Um, but, and I'm not a behavioural scientist, but in terms of thinking about things like choice architecture and the, the nudges that, that are necessary, we are probably a long way off um, changing yet because of the necessity so there's no doubt that climate change is not a thing that's going to happen in the future it's absolutely happening to us now and we're seeing that in extreme weather events um, constantly um, and yet we all live our pretty safe um, first world existences at least here in New Zealand and so that urgency to change in the same way that we did last year particularly in terms of ways of working is not quite there yet um, the biggest one where we probably need to think about that is around transport. Um, it's not enough just to move from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles. There has to be a modal shift. We have to think about how we get from A to B to C differently. And I think in New Zealand at least we are not there yet because necessity drives us back to the car even if intent is something a little bit different. Again, it will be interesting to see what the government does, particularly off the back of the Climate Change Commission's advice, to really drive that a lot more strongly and accelerate the pace of change. Thank you, yeah. Vincent, picking up on that transport um, subject, it's one of New Zealand's largest sources of carbon emissions. We've recently seen the clean car discount and the clean car standard introduced by the government. This will shift us towards cleaner vehicles, but it doesn't challenge our driving and, and car ownership culture. What solutions do you think we could adopt to transform our approach to mobility, building on what Annabelle's just shared, um, in e.g. a shift to mobility as a service or, or what else mm -hmm. is coming? I think there's two levels to this. There's the personal uh, commitment that we have to make as individuals, and you know, that actually makes a difference. And um, so a commitment to opening your mind to modal shift. Um, mm. Is it possible that I could um, not hop in my car today? You know, actually challenge yourself um, as a as a proper grown up. You know, now this is the moment that we all have to face. Is like we are the grown ups now in the room, and our decisions make a difference. Mm. So I think living with that challenge now is quite important. It doesn't matter what the topic is, but in, in transport, it's it's really 
that's a profound question. How am I going to get to work? How am I going to go around today? So there's that. There's the personal thing, but then there's the kind of the corporate thing, and at a at a network level, and um, I think the evidence is pretty clear that the stick is required. Um, the carrot is being built. We you know we've invested a lot in busways and uh, you know a new fleet. Of, they're talking about Auckland, say. Um, Auckland Transport could do more around cycleways and so on, but actually the, there's enough carrot there for people like me to hop on my bike and have a comfortable journey into town. The stick is coming, and that is congestion pricing and also um, uh, fuel taxes. And I think those are unpopular, and good luck to any government that's going to introduce those. But I do think that if you talk to the people at Auckland Transport, they, they say a certain amount of carrot will get us only so far. In the end, we need to feel the pain of our decisions. Mm. Mm. Sorry to say, it's not a technology solution. <laughs> just picking up on something that Vincent just said. Um, it's quite interesting that with cons uh, food consumption habits, you know, lots of families and people are moving to this idea that maybe they'll have a meat-free day once a week. Wouldn't it be interesting to consider if people had a, a car-free day once a week and built that into their lives? And maybe that will come, but I feel it's going to be the stick of, it's going to cost you if you drive every single day rather than people opting to do it. But yeah. it will be lovely. But it has really important uh, knock-on effects around <coughs> um, justice and this idea of climate justice is, is a really growing topic. And we're not kind of super into it as, as technologists because we're always sort of, so optimistic about the future and it's going to be wonderful and you know there'll be bright shiny buzzy things but actually for the profound effect on a, a family living on, let's just choose a suburb if you work in Henderson and you live in Manurewa and you have to get across town on a bus it's a really unpleasant experience mm. and if you're going to be also pinged with a congestion charge and a fuel tax so it raises some really profound issues around equity access and, and justice, which is uh, probably has a technology solution somewhere in there, um, cheaper EVs or um, smarter networks, you know, somewhere <coughs> around here it's got the smart city. If we could have a smart integrated transport network yeah. that was multimodal, you know, that would be cool. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, Annabelle, I'm going to jump back to something you raised a couple of minutes ago around um, adverse weather events. Uh, in the past few months, we've seen flooding in the, in the South Island and Wellington dealing with coastal inundation. Uh, we've talked a lot about using technology to mitigate emissions to reduce our footprint. But what about helping us to adapt to these changes? Yeah, we're a little bit behind on this and seem to have taken our eye off the ball a little bit in New Zealand. So certainly there's a focus on emissions reduction and that can't stop. Um, at the same time, as I said before, Climate change is not a thing that's going to happen in the future. It is happening now. Um, the, the increased severity of weather events and the increased frequency of them is already showing up for us here in New Zealand, but also overseas. The government has a national adaptation plan apparently coming out sometime next year, but my understanding is that there is no ink on any paper anywhere around that yet. Um, and what we are seeing is this focus on thinking about emissions reduction rather than that adaptation piece. 
uh, a couple of years, I think it was a couple of years ago, Ministry of Defence actually <coughs> wrote a paper um, looking at how what they do in supporting, protecting New Zealand is going to change in the future and how their, if you can call what they have as a business model, has to change as a result because they are going to be assisting New Zealanders much, much more because of this change in our climate and their business model has to adapt as a result. What we're starting to see a little bit, and I'm hearing this from clients that's quite exciting when they are thinking about it, uh, things like um, seed varieties that are drought resistant or grow in hotter climates. So, you know, the fruit and veg that we eat. Um, some of the ag companies are looking at genetics and understanding how they can breed cows that that operate or function or exist better in hot climates. Pretty exciting stuff that that is starting to come through because this change is only going to increase in the weather patterns and we have to think about ways that what we do um, changes along with it. Um, big questions around how New Zealand faces into things like the built environment and infrastructure though, because they are literally going to get a pounding and it's not clear that we're set up yet or facing into what it means to make sure that our roads can cope with constant flooding, that our buildings are going to be resilient in the face of more storms. Yeah. How about you Vincent? Yeah, there's an uh, interesting anecdote that um, comes from having worked with an insurance company um, as a client and um, they're a really significant <coughs> insurance company in New Zealand. They know better than anybody the cost of rising seas and storm events um, and they find themselves in a very difficult situation because uh, on the one hand they, they know that the, imminent, that the costs are rising and what's in front of the country from a mitigation point of view but um, you know they also know that that comes with, with a whole lot of political uh, consequences um, and actually a really material consequence on valuation so if you're in a company sitting on information knowing that 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 shorefront property is going to be you know halved in value in 15 years time I'm just making those numbers up uh, what uh, what do you do with that information uh, because it has a a significant effect on the property owner for the property mm. owners that are there. It has a profound implications for the liability around for councils and for um, you know other parts of government that might bear some responsibility for allowing that development to happen. And what um, and so that knowledge is now becoming quite uh, sensitive. Mm. Um, and I, I look at it from a from a comms and PR point of view that there is is almost like a liability of information coming of what did you know what did you do with that information um, and you know I want to freak people out but uh, you know the Westport floods uh, are uh, and it's, you know this is probably the wrong time to be saying this but <clears> entirely <throat> predictable right the sea is only going in one direction and, and low-lying suburbs are vulnerable and so what do we do with that knowledge? It's, mm. it's, a, it's an interest, there's lots of interesting legal implications yep. as well. And I suppose the other side of that story is that at the same time we need as much information and transparency of data and new and different data sets so that we're informed enough to make decisions. So it is that 
how much information should <laughs> should people be allowed and how much can we give them so that so that organizations and individuals can make informed decisions about what they need to do and when yes thank you um we're going to ask vincent you're going to ask you a question about this now we often talk about transforming existing industries but what about new industries? What opportunities do you see for New Zealand to grow its digital economy as an alternative to our more traditional economic drivers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question, um, particularly as uh, we are still so dependent on shifting atoms out of New Zealand, whether it's milk or meat or forestry or whatever. So how do we become a, a kind of bits and bytes economy? I don't know if anyone talks about bits and bytes anymore, but it makes me feel very 90s. <laughs> um, well, so I think there's, there's, there's kind of a couple of aspects to this. There's, even in the farming, agricultural, horticultural sector, there is a huge amount of information now. So we, you know, we're mm. well past just being a pure commodity economy. It, even in the production of, of low-level exports, such as dried, um, you know, dried milk, there's a huge amount of IP and intelligence that goes into that. And so I think that horticulture especially, but ag as well, are information-rich businesses and they will demand a huge amount of investment in monitoring, sensors, measuring, genetics, all, all the things Annabelle talked about. So I don't think that's going away and that's an exciting mm. opportunity, right? Um, but then you look at also New Zealand's tech sector continues to grow and some very cool companies have recently sold for high valuations and thinking of Timely for instance which is nothing to do with traditional <coughs> New Zealand businesses but why has Timely sold for what was it, what was it sold for just over 100 mil I think uh, it's because they um, have created a really elegant system that fitted into a small business environment in New Zealand and then was completely transferable overseas. Mm. So the same dynamics that exist in the small business environment in New Zealand apply internationally. And so you could kind of run through the Moby to go, which has taken um, the digitization of menus and um, restaurants. Um, they made it work in New Zealand, uh, kind of in this tiny economy. It was almost like a low oxygen environment to produce a SaaS business plug that into international markets and suddenly you can grow really fast. Mm. So I think New Zealand's quite well positioned to grow SaaS businesses aimed at small to medium enterprise sector. Nice, nice. Annabelle, your thoughts? I think looking at, at the larger corporates that operate in New Zealand, it would be great to see them putting more focus on thinking about nurturing that innovation in, I, I suppose, digital as solutions that they can then apply back to their own challenges, particularly around climate, but more broadly, but then making them more available. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. There is, there is much more of an expectation that um, sector groups and industry groups work together to find solutions. Um, particularly to the climate challenge. And I think in that digital space, because of New Zealand's small size and scale, the more some of the bigger guys can band together that create solutions 
for their whole sector, the better off we're all going to be. Certainly they're not going to give away IP if, if it creates a competitive advantage for them, but there are loads of things that could be done um, to, so, to solve some of the, the problems we're facing into, um, particularly digital solutions mm. that could be used cross sector and then beyond. I think there's a thinking about moving away from just supply chains to value chains. And if, if, if big companies could start thinking of their own suppliers as part of as partners rather than just suppliers and driving down say the, the cost of sourcing materials but saying well actually how could we nurture you to become part of our whole value chain. That's a really powerful um, uh, creates clusters of value mm -hmm. that then can be captured at the um, uh, at the customer end. And I'll just give you one example, <coughs> which is not nothing really to do with sustainability. But <clears throat> you think about what's happened with Panamu. So one level, Panamu is just it's greenstone. You know, it grows, <laughs> doesn't grow. Uh, <laughs> it's found everywhere in the world. There's nothing molecular. <coughs> unique about Greenstone but what's been created with Panamu is this value chain that says actually it's own, our Greenstone is only found in this part of the country it is only um, carved and blessed by these people who are approved and it creates a whole journey from from the ground through mm. to the consumer who now values this piece of Tonga right yeah. that they <clears throat> and can only get in one part of the world that value chain is it's all soft skills. Yep. There's there's almost no physical IP in that apart from you know the the material itself. But how many more value chains could we create if we could take this kind of partnership approach to, to working together? Mm. And um, if we had a big enough w view of the world, a sort of an abundant view of the world, we wouldn't be so siloed in our approach, but it's a classic New Zealand thing to, th to think, well, this is mine, <laughs> you know, and I, I mustn't share it. And uh, Spark is probably in, in a brilliant position to be able to foster those conversations. And I think places like this are really helpful yeah. to kind of encourage that level of dialogue. Yeah, love that, love that. Great. Um, as we start to bring this part of our event to a conclusion, and we move from me asking the questions to our audience, um, a last couple of questions for you both. So Annabelle first, what is keeping us behind? And as a follow-up question to that, what's next as a game changer? I think, to, I think Vincent just asked, uh, answered the what's keeping us behind. Um, I think the limits of our own creativity, that's it. Because there has never been a time when organizations have been given license to disrupt their business models, to be innovative like now. The, the permission has been granted. And right at the other end of that, that value chain in terms of customers and consumers, there is appetite to, to take on new ideas, new products, new ways of doing things. So we just have to push against that. I think that's the, the, the most exciting thing. And it's really, really challenging going out there and saying, okay, what if we just throw everything up in the air and try to do something differently? What if we really look at what we're doing and say, is this a viable, sustainable future for whatever widget we create or the service we provide and challenging whether there's an opportunity to reinvent? Yeah. Um, 
so it's 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 not a specific thing it's it's a mindset shift and i think there is an openness and an acceptance of that at the moment which is really really exciting yeah it is really exciting mm. so given that you've already told us what's keeping <laughs> us behind what do you see next as, as the next game changer yeah uh, i completely agree about the mind shift and i'll just give an anecdote when uh when electricity was introduced into factories uh, following um, steam, it took 40 years for the benefits to be really experienced. And it was not because the technology had to be developed. The technology was there. It took the death of the management, mm. basically. Um, and so the, we're constrained by the technology we grow up, by the mind models we have. So part of the challenge for that is to, uh, and it, it's really hard, right? This is not easy stuff, is to put yourself into the future. And so how do you do that? Well, one of the things you start to do is you is imagination exercises and, and questions. So here's a, here's a challenge that Volvo put out, which I think is a really lovely device. Imagine if I could, if a Volvo, when it was driving, the air that came out was cleaner than the air that went in. And that's... That's a really nice little challenge because that's saying, uh, when I operate my business, I don't just want to be less harmful. The very act of being my business actually improves the biosphere. Imagine how, and, and so that's a shift from saying, I'm going to, um, I, I'm good because I've beaten my children a little less, <laughs> to I've nurtured and grown, you know, these mokupuna um, and, um, <clears throat> And that's a question for the future. Mm. So uh, imagine the very act of getting up in the morning, you actually bless the environment you're in, you've nurtured and grown trees, you've um, contributed more oxygen to the air, or whatever. Uh, you know, I'm talking about nirvana, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, asking yourself those sorts of questions, I think, is how you start having a, a foot in the future. Nice. Thank you. Thank you to you both. Um, so now we move into the part of our event where our audience have the opportunity to ask questions of our guests. Um, I just wanted to ask on the carbon pricing um, sort of concept and, and that research you were speaking about earlier, um, is, is there a point at which, like, do, do we sort of have a, a good idea of how high that carbon price can get to stimulate um, sort of investment in carbon sequestration and things like that and good returns on investment for businesses to start the transition versus, um, you know, obviously getting way too high and just hampering businesses in, in what they do. Um, I'm not sure if that's a question. Do you have any <laughs> sort of comment on that? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting consideration because some of the projections around carbon pricing are, you know, in the stratosphere. We're sitting around, you know, the $40, $50 mark at the moment, and yet there are these expectations that it will go to hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in the future. So in, in a New Zealand context, um, well, actually, before I said that, the whole thing is a bit of crystal ball gazing, of course, because we don't know. In a New Zealand context, one thing that the, the Climate Change Commission's advice advised, other than increasing the carbon price immediately, is that organisations should be thinking about a, a shadow price for carbon and building that into to how they think about their strategies and investments in the future. For different 
industries and sectors that is going to be different in terms of the, the economics of whatever what they do um, and it will be really really interesting to see whether it is a couple of hundred dollars or even higher in terms of where it could go but many companies particularly those that are high emitters are already starting to factor that in because that uh, marginal abatement cost of carbon shadow price for carbon all of those sorts of modeling techniques um, Com comparing whatever it is you happen to do in within your business model are going to to get that price at a point in the future where it's it just doesn't make sense to to continue to admit carbon and have to pay a price for it of course the other complication with this is that there needs to be solutions so we hope that um, a higher price for carbon drives an acceleration in the solutions that can replace the, the high emitting, whatever it is. But often there's a disconnect, there's a lag in the market one way or the other, and that's certainly a risk that many, many sectors are facing into, not just in New Zealand, but overseas as well. Can, can I just think about um, history has taught us about um, dealing with toxic things in the past, and if you were a hat manufacturer, and you were told in you know, years gone by, and you were told that mercury is no longer available because it turns out it's quite poisonous. Um, you know, you'd be shocked and you'd be upset. And now the idea of including mercury in hats is laughable because we know how toxic it is. And how many toxic uh, elements have we eliminated from our supply chain? And at the time, have thought it was too hard and too costly and too difficult. And it turns out new business <coughs> models, new technologies have replaced mm. them, whether it's arsenic or coal dust or um, asbestos. asbestos, exactly. Um, and now the idea of those being built into our supply chains is laughable. You know, mm. it's like, mm. what were we thinking? Well, it turns out that it was costly, but there was an alternative. And yeah. so the, uh, you know, the optimist in us must hope that we're inventive enough to find, e even if carbon you know, goes to thousands of dollars, how cool, what, what's the alternative? Mars, possibly. <laughs> Anyone else have a question or comment? Um, first of all, thank you for this, uh, for those insights and your, both of your visions. Um, I just wanted to share a short story and get your opinion about that. Um, I worked recently with um, utility, um, utility monitoring company they were monitoring energy and water usage using IoT devices. And um, we built a solution to, uh, to detect abnormal um, energy consumption um, usage. And, and, I was, and I realized that there are many companies like them, um, but building this type of solution um, is definitely beneficial um, overall because it helps to reduce um, carbon emissions and the carbon footprint. And I was wondering, um, so, it, so it's beneficial for all of us, and I was wondering why, yeah, why, why don't more companies do that? And, and I was starting to think about what should be the balance between um, having incentives for companies to make a change of that nature. Uh, so the balance between that and uh, putting, having policies in place and putting constraints to encourage and push uh, businesses to make this kind of change. So, for you, what would be the factors to decide between uh, 
putting incentives in place and uh, constraints in place. Do, do you mean uh, the tension between, say, public good yeah. and a commercial return? Mm -hmm. uh, Annabelle knows the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually going to say that Vincent's comments before about sticks and carrots um, is pretty much on the money and it is difficult to get the balance. So, you know, we're seeing, for example, not with those sorts of technologies, but the government's recent announcement around um, a rebate, no, whatever it is, a cash handout for electric vehicles to incentivize purchase of them while at the same time taxing utes, um, which has created a furor in the, in the market, particularly in the agri-sector. Um, now, one is meant to serve the other, so there's supposed to be a balance there. Unfortunately, the timing's a little bit out with handing money out before you get any money in, but we won't discuss that. Um, <laughs> um, but that's an example of how it plays. I think we need both. In terms of specifically what you were talking about, um, that whole monitoring landscape that would drive changed behaviours, to me, it really needs some sort of compliance regulatory landscape because that's then going to incentivize people to install the technology to make sure that they are compliant with whatever standard they need to be. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those very interesting but sort of less sexy, unloved technologies that are absolutely essential to getting some of those um, uh, emissions categories down, they are not focused on in the same way as some of the the more obvious ones, um, but hopefully things like building standards, um, uh, the, the Building for Climate Change Accord, for example, those sorts of things in terms of putting in compliance levels or minimum standards starts to drive the usage and uptake of those sorts of technologies. There's also a voluntary aspect to this. For instance, uh, if you um, be bold enough to share your information platform and make it publicly available, suddenly that becomes a, by default, an industry standard. And you think about, say, what uh, Tesla have done with their IP around, um, um, uh, I think it's drivetrain technology, isn't it, that they've made public. And, and that's driven a whole lot of in innovation on top of that platform. And there are lots of examples in tech um, I can't think of a single one just at the moment, but um, of where putting the, um, voluntarily putting, putting out your tech as a platform and then letting people innovate on top of that. Can we think of an example? The web itself. Right, yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah. Cool. Any other questions? Yeah, also to follow up with that, um, Maui 63, um, which are doing sustainability, they're um, researching um, the Maui dolphin and they're going to be putting all of their research on um, open source. So anybody who's wanting to do further um, research and development with regards to anything eco can then use their, their research, which would be amazing from that perspective. Um, my question though is going to be around what we were talking about, these uh, dramatic weather events. Um, and how we future-proof and build um, infrastructure, housing, roads, and all those sorts of things. Are you aware of any um, technology or, or anything that is being developed? I don't know whether there's anything here, but uh, globally that's going to help in the future because obviously this is a global thing. Um, clearly what we've got in place now is not fit for purpose in forms of roading and housing and, and those sorts of things, but is there anything in place that 
might withstand these sort of weather events? I think we see, particularly in areas with high risk of earthquakes, for example, that it's, uh, there are certain materials that are more resilient to the shock of an earthquake. Um, but it's more around the standards to which things are built. Um, because I think the products, the, literally the bricks and mortar that are available in some respects, um, can withstand lots of things. It's how it's constructed that's more more important and you know whether how tall it is or how wide it is or how close it is to the sea and therefore the impact if that's what we're, we're considering. Particularly with the built environment there seems to be more of a focus on the environmental sustainability of the structures and reducing the emissions in them rather than the structural integrity of them because that's a given. It's almost an expectation that the standards exist in, in, in a given market and those I'm sure will continue to be a, a adapted and evolve over time just as they are when you know a new fault is discovered somewhere in a country. Um, what's probably more interesting at the moment is materials that are used to think about insulation, um, passive housing or building design, um, the, the lighting and the sensors and everything else that is in a building that can make it a really um, enjoyable structure to be in, either living or working, but also has a really positive impact on the environment as well. I'm thinking particularly in regards to sea level rise that if anyone knows how to do it, it would be the Dutch who have lived below the level of the sea for a long time. Um, and there are a couple of quite cool things there. In the, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a massive flood uh, on, on to the western side of Rotterdam. And um, rather than working against the sea and just building more and more walls, what they did was they removed a huge number of suburbs to create natural places where the sea could go and also these incredible gates that would open and close to let the, let the natural sea level rise be managed. And, and the whole philosophy was not uh, working to resist nature but actually to work with nature. And that's kind of one of, you know, we talked about mm. a, a modal shift, a, a mind shift, sorry. Working with, so natural systems is probably one of the big changes that's required. The other thing that I saw in Amsterdam when I was there a long time ago was an entire suburb that floated. And it was, mm -hmm. was, just, was just a floating suburb and it, so sea level rise mattered less when you're floating. <laughs> but I think as a philosophy, um, how do we work with nature? Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we are subservient to nature it turns out so have, at least starting with that as an assumption um, and I think the um, this is where we can learn a lot from uh, Te Ao Māori principles uh, of saying well hang on if we are just part of nature and um, and we need to respond to her rather than resist her um, and how do we do that intergenerationally that, that creates a really interesting framework to start doing things like the built environment. Mm. Imagine if you could move a whole suburb mm. rather than put up a seawall. A barrier. Mm. Very nice. Mm. Cool. Well, that brings our session to an end. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for your contributions today. Um, a special thank you to our guests, Annabelle and Vincent, for spending time with us and sharing your, your knowledge, your insights and experiences with us all here today. Let's show our appreciation for their, their time. Thank you. And lastly, to everyone here from the team here at Spark, kia kaha, kia maya, kia manawanui. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.